So prayer is not, uh, it's not so easy, is it? And um, I want to just read from Matthew chapter 6 from verse 5 to verse 8. I wonder, Andrew, could, could you just read that for me for this, please? Because yeah. we, we love your, your Welsh accent as well. <laughs> we don't hear enough of it in London. When you pray, you shall not be as the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogue and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But you, when you pray, enter into your room and shut your door, door. Pray to your Father, who is unseen, and your Father, who sees in secret, shall reward you. Men praying do not use vain repetition as the Gentiles do. They think that they shall be heard, for they are much speaking. Therefore, do not be like that. Even before you ask him, your Father knows what things you need. Right, thanks. So he says, the Lord says, go into your room and pray secretly. So you see straight up the difference between religion and spirituality that what it's really about is who you are when nobody is looking. That is the essence of what it is to be a Christian. Where are your thoughts when no one else is looking? Who are you when no one else is looking? On the continent, it's common to have what they call a house of prayer. A church is called a house of prayer. I've always thought that's a bit of a weird idea, that oh, I want to pray to God, oh, I go into the house of prayer. And I say my prayers, they'll come out. No. Jesus says, shut the door in your room, and that is your little house. That is your little temple. That's your little church. So pray on your own. Right? And pray in your room, he says. I think he means in your bedroom. So I think start the day with prayer, finish the day with prayer, seriously. Seriously. And it is about, as I say, who you are when nobody is, is looking. That's the thing. I don't use my repetitions thinking, oh, you know, I've said this a million times and God's going to listen to me. No, it's from the heart. And before you ask him, your father knows what you need. And that is a huge comfort. That when you talk to God about your situation, it's not as if, hey, God, up there, Hey, by getting his attention, here's the thing. Like I was talking about being in Ukraine, and there's the sirens going off and you hear a blast. And of course you pray to God, right? That's by the normal reaction of every human being to pray to God. But it's not as if, hey God, do you know what's going on down here? He actually knew, if you like, millennia ago, that Duncan was going to be in that particular spot in Ukraine and there was going to be sirens and there was going to be whatever. Or whatever issue that you've got, let's say you've got a lump and you're concerned it might be cancer and you're waiting for the, you know, the letter back from the specialist. What are my results? It's not as, oh God, hey, pay attention. God knew that situation. Actually, I was going to say thousands of years ago, but actually probably from the beginning of time. He knew that. And that is a great comfort. 
for us, the future is all unknown. Oh, I got this letter from the specialist. Oh, I've got this. Oh, there's a bomb. Oh, there's this. I broke my ankle. Oh, whatever. But the comfort is that God already knew. So he's going to um, tell us now more comfortably how to pray. So if you'd like to um, read that for us, Andrew. In this manner you should our Father, who is in heaven, let your name be glorified. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Be yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. But if you forgive men their trespasses, the Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Thank you. So, he says this is how you should pray. And the first word is our. Our Father. So you see straight away there is a sort of a collective dimension. Our Father. Oh God help me, me, it's all about me. Our Father. The very first word is reminding us that man is not alone. Even on this world, we are not alone. And we all tend to think that it's just me. That there is a body of believers. Even if we are skeptical of church, as in, you know, go to church in, you know, fix some water kind of building, okay, but all the same, our Father, there are other people around who are also the children of God. Our Father, I am one of other children. We are in a family. Our Father, who is in heaven. Well, you often get this in the prayers of David and others that you read of in the Old Testament. God who is in heaven. And it might sound obvious that God is in heaven, but think about it. That implies that God has a location. Alright, it's called heaven, but he has a location. There is a throne, we are told. And we come before the throne of grace. That implies that God is a personal being. God is a personal being. So God is not a cloud that is floating around. God is not an ether up in the atmosphere, something abstract. God is real. God is real. And you may say, what do you mean by that? Has God got, you know, toenails and fingernails and all that sort of thing? And, well, okay, you can't go too far. You, you can, it wouldn't be appropriate to go too far, but all the same, I would say that God exists in a corporeal sense. That means in a bodily form, in an actual form. Why I say that is because man is made in the image of God. We are made in God's image. And we're not made in his image in a spiritual sense because we keep our minds all over the place. But we are made in his image in some form. You know, Jesus was asked a trick question by the Jews. They said, um, 
should we pay tribute to Caesar? And he says, give me a penny. He gave him a penny and it's got Caesar's image on it. Like British coins have got the image of Queen Elizabeth. And he said, right, this coin has got Caesar's image on it. So give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Give it to him. And to God the things that are God's. Well, what has got God's image on? You and me. We are in God's image. And the very fact that we are human and as we are, this means that we are in His image. So, God is real. In the sense that God actually exists in a personal form. And, as I say, you know, people can mock that, people can abuse that by, you know, saying, ah, yeah, come off it. No, God is real, and we can relate to God, and when you pray, your words come into the presence of God himself. It says that the Lord Jesus now has been exalted, and he is at the right hand of God, interceding with God for us. That's why we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Because he, yeah, there's one God, Paul, Paul says, and one mediator between God and the man, Christ Jesus. So he's a mediator. So there is God, actually real in heaven. And there is Jesus, the Lord Jesus, our intercessor, our high priest. So God is real. He is a personal being. And that is very helpful when it comes to prayer. Because our Father, who is in heaven. Now just before you start off with, oh God, help me with this, help me with the letter from the specialist, help me with my broken ankle, help me with the bombs, help me with whatever, lack of money this month, or whatever the issue is. Before you get all your issues, <laughs> our Father, you are not alone, who is in heaven, but he is there. And I think that that sort of puts the brake on a little bit. Now you don't just go rushing off, oh, give me this, give me that. Our Father who is in heaven, and as um, Solomon says, God is in heaven and you are on earth, therefore let your words be few. That is to say, I think that treat him with respect. And don't fire off a lot of requests of God as if, yeah, you're a sort of five-year-old and your granny says, what would you like for Christmas, dear? And you think, well, if I give her a list of a hundred things, I might get two of them. Um, no, God is in heaven and you are on earth. But the amazing point is that the words of a bloke standing in a pub in Troy, the words of a woman standing at a bus stop, at a tram stop in New Allington, are going all that way up to God himself. That God is real, he is in heaven, and your words, my words, go up there, in a moment, in a flash, in a nanosecond. They are actually heard by him. And this opens up the whole idea of relationship that you can enter into relationship with him. You can have a relationship with a cloud, with a fluffy idea, with an abstraction. You have a relationship with a person. 
and God is real, and you can have that relationship. As long as the Lord Jesus, He is real. You can have that relationship with Him. So our Father who is in heaven, let your name be glorified. Well, God's name is His characteristics. When Moses says, show me your glory, God reveals His name and says, I am a God full of grace, full of truth, full of justice, etc. The name of God is who He essentially is. And it is that name which we want to see worked out in my life. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, that really is the answer to all these questions of human suffering. It is God's intention to send His Son back to this earth. And we pray for that day to come so that God's will will be done on this earth. Implication is God's will is not now done. Because people do not do what God wants. We know that. And we are upset about that and we, we hate actually how it is. We don't want it to be like it is now. Human beings do what they want. Everyone wants to do something different and so you get the mess that we have in human society. And yet we want God's kingdom to come so that His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the next verse is almost impossible to throw. That is almost impossible to seriously ask. Give us this day our daily bread, because it means give me enough food for today. Well, I don't want just enough food for today. I, I'm also concerned about my lack of attention. I am also concerned about this or that, or, you know. Um, I'm concerned about uh, clothes, I'm concerned about all sorts of things. And I'm concerned about what I might have to meet, bills I might have to meet next week. And yet he says to pray just for the food for today. Now this prayer, which you might have learned at school, is so quick and easy to pray. Give us this day our daily bread. Wow, that's hard. If you put meaning into words, that is very difficult to pray that. Because we want more. The illusion is uh, to Israel in the wilderness, when they were given manna every day, but it was only enough food for that day. And if they tried to keep it, we're told it went wrong. They couldn't keep manna overnight. They had to get new manna every morning. And I think that's what Jesus is alluding to. Give us this day our daily bread. And that will be enough. Well, it's very difficult to live like that. You want more. But that's a challenge. And of course he will. And so the big, I think, challenge is that will God allow a true Christian to literally go hungry? I think not. Um, we will be given enough food for today. Just like Israel never went hungry after their baptism, and they walked through the wilderness, they never went hungry. You see, 
Paul says that when they went through the wilderness, this was like, sorry, when they went through the Red Sea, this was like baptism. But they left Egypt, which is like the world, they went through the water, which is like baptism, and they came out the other side, not in the promised land, but in the wilderness. And they went through the wilderness for 40 years. And God fed them every day with manna until they came to the promised land, the kingdom of God. So, when you're baptised, you're not swayed away in the kingdom of God, you've got to go through the desert. But God will give you food every day. I think that's his promise. And really, if that is his promise, then what have we got to worry about? Ah, but I want to have all of it. I want to this, I want to that, I want to have this phone, I want to have you know, I want to have assurance in the future. But if only we can live in the in that comfort, then I will not go hungry. What else have you got to worry about? Yes, what we worry about is all put in our head by advertising, by the flesh, by the world, by the desire for the smart life, and all this kind of thing. And the next verse is also very, very difficult. And forgive us our debtors as we forgive, as we have also forgiven our debtors. You can tell that verse is difficult to pray, because as soon as the Lord's Prayer is finished, Jesus goes straight back and talks about that point as if he's saying, yeah, I know you guys are going to find that difficult. Well, he's given the prayer again and says, because if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive you. So, it's as if he understands that this is going to be difficult for us. So, as I say, you can learn to pray the Lord's Prayer at school, but it is very, very difficult to pray it from your heart. Because what he's saying is, forgive me please, according as I forgive my people. In other words, the policy of forgiveness that you have on someone else is going to be God's policy for you. And in the Lord's Prayer you're saying that. I admit that. Please forgive me according to my forgiveness of others. We ought to say that. Well, if for example you have the view that I will forgive you if you get on the floor and apologise to me, I shall forgive you. But if you don't, well I shall not forgive you. Alright, that's what you do. That's your policy of forgiveness. Well that is how God is going to forgive you. The, uh, the problem is that we all sin without realising that we sinned. So I say to God, God forgive me please all my sins, the ones I realise and the ones I don't. Just forgive me please, I will not. But, don't you count? <laughs> no, I do, I ask God to forgive me the whole condition. The ones I know I've done and the ones I know I've done but I don't realise I've done. Now, if that's what I still... I tell you, you said that. If that's what I expect from God, to forgive me on that basis, I had better forgive people who sin against me but don't say so. <laughs> now that is difficult to forgive without demanding repentance. 
But I would say that forgiveness is not the same as trust. For example, King David, he was abused by King Saul, and he forgives Saul, but he doesn't trust him. And when Saul says to him one time, oh yeah, I forgive you, uh, you've forgiven me, I think one from David, come back to the palace and live with me. David's like, not likely, mate. <laughs> and that is how it is. You know, people say to me, oh, you know, my husband's abused me for 20 years, how can I forgive him? Well, why they struggle with that forgiveness is because they assume that it means I've got to live with him and I've got to put up with it all again. No, you don't. No. You can forgive him, but you don't have to trust him. And you don't have to live with it. That doesn't mean you don't forgive him. So, trust is not the same as, as forgiveness. You can forgive somebody, but maybe the relationship is not restored. That's how it is. What's important is to forgive. Because as you forgive, you shall be forgiven. And if you are going to say, no, I am not going to forgive you, until you do this, that, and the other. Alright, you can have the freedom to operate in your life like that, but the only big problem is that that's how God will treat you. And you have not repented of all your sins. And we all come with the day of judgment thinking, we think about the day of judgment and we think, oh, hang on, what about this, what about that? And you haven't got to worry about that. If you say, oh, God, I love you, I'm, I'm a sinner, just please forgive me the whole lot. Yeah, as I forgive others, I totally forgive all of them. <laughs> X number one, X number two, X number three, X number four. You know, they're all, it's all scribbled. It doesn't mean you live with them. It doesn't mean you trust them. It doesn't mean you even like them. The other problem I find with forgiveness is that very often people say, well, we've got to agree historically what happened. We've got to have an agreed version of events. And then we can move forward. You don't get an agreed version of events. You sit down with your ex or with somebody wronged you, Let's agree what happened. Well, you don't agree. What happened was that uh, you got drunk that evening and then you, you, you hit me. No, no, it wasn't like that. I didn't get drunk that evening. Uh, you're not going to get an agreed version of events. You, you know, you, we, we're not young people here, right? We're all skilled people. You don't get an agreed version of events with people. That's not the basis of forgiveness. There has to be this decision to forgive. And the, the word forgive in Hebrew means to let go. In fact, in Russian it is the same. I have it, but I let it go. In English, not quite the same. Uh, but in Hebrew, that is the idea. And they say in other languages. I have it in my hand, but I let it go. And it also puts you in the position of power. You know, you, you may be a small person who was abused by the big brother, but you actually have the power to forgive. You, although you are the little and he or she or they who abused you may be the big ones. 
You have the power to forgive. The other thing is that you can you can suffer abuse or whatever, not so much from that individual, but from a system of a group of people. For example, as you know, I lived 30, 25, 30 years in the former Soviet Union, and there were people there who had been in the gulag, in the, in the camps, and so forth, who struggled to forgive what had been done to them. If you're locked up in a camp in Siberia for 20 years, who do you forgive? You know, how can you forgive a system? Likewise, the person who might be, or the person who abused you might now be dead. How do you forgive? You cannot get an agreed version of events with them because they are dead. Let it go in the sense of forgive. I forgive you. I am not going to agree with you, I am not going to justify you, I am not going to say what you did was right, I am not going to trust you, I do not want to live with you, I don't want to share my life with you, but I forgive you. And you, the little one, have the power. And so this teaching about forgiving debts, and we see, is profound. Because it empowers the little person. And we are all little people, let's face it. And it means that people are debtors to us. For example, let's say that you haven't got much money and you live in a difficult life. You live in a flat, let's say, in, uh, I don't know, some random part of London, let's say, um, I don't know, Poplar. Whitechapel, whatever. And you're there, and uh, money's difficult, but there's a bloke next door. And for some reason, he's a very nice bloke, and he's got some money. At the end of the week, you say, Oh, Bob, you couldn't stand me out of quid, could you? And he stands you out of quid, and the next week, it's the same, Oh, Bob, you couldn't stand me 50 quid. And he stands you 50 quid, and he keeps lending you money, keeps lending you money. He never asks you back for it back. Now do you feel when you read it, you think, oh, I've had this problem. Bob's power, more powerful than you, isn't it? Because he's, he's been so kind to you, he's lent you money, he's given you money. Sometimes Bob comes around your flat and says, not doing good, huh? Ah, not doing good. But it's not doing good. Ah, thanks, Bob, all the best, mate. But every time you see Bob, you think, oh, Bob. That's all about. The person who has, yeah, you are Bob. The person who sinned against you, even though they might be some higher mighty person, who has sinned against you repeatedly, they are in your debt. And you are Bob. You're Bob to them. Yeah, I've forgiven you. I've let you off. Week in, week out. And you, the little one. I don't think that. In God's eyes. Because you see, this is what Christianity does. It's a radical inversion of everything. A radical turning upside down, whereby the humble are the great, and the great are the small. So, verse 13, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Again, put meaning in the words, and don't rattle these words off, like we did when we were kids at school. You had to say the Lord's Prayer before you went home, so. You know, you can get it done in about 
four seconds. Lead us not into temptation. You asking God not to lead you into temptation. The scary implication of that is that God can lead you into temptation. He will confirm you in the way that you want to go. Again, King Saul of Israel. An evil spirit from the Lord tormented Saul. God was leading the guy, pushing the guy in the way he wanted to go. There is also the Holy Spirit, whereby God will give you a mind, a heart, to go the other way. So you can never take a break. You can never say, ah, oh, no, I'm just taking a holiday from God and all that stuff. I'm just taking a break. I'm not going to be naughty. I'm not going to be good. No. 24-7, actually. God is waiting there to, to confirm. You want to go God's way, He will confirm. You want to go the wrong way, He will lead you in the temptation. He, he will push you down that path. And that's a scary thought. 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul says that God will send people, some people, a strong delusion <coughs> that they might believe a lie because they did not love the truth. The person who doesn't love the truth, God sends them a strong delusion that they might believe a lie. But if you love the truth, God will open your eyes and you will see it. Right away. So, this is what gives meaning to life, that uh, we are not just, you know, Christians when you go to church. It's 24-7. And God is waiting to lead us. You in all your heart and soul and mind want to go his way. He will push you that way. And frankly, if you don't, push you that other way. Absolutely. I told you all the years used to run the church and uh, they'd really go mainly dealing with a lot of folks coming in alcohol. I see so many stories like this. You know, people say, oh, I've really tried not to drink. And you, you know what? Uh, I thought, should I buy uh, some vodka on the way home? And I thought, no, I won't. But then I thought, ah, because when I get home, I've actually got a bottle of vodka. Well, I got home, and uh, do you know what? My wife had given that bottle of vodka to the woman next door. So no really vodka. So I didn't drink last night. And, uh, well, I was going to... The next day, the guy would say to me, well, then I was going to go drinking the, the next day. Um, but you know what, I broke my ankle. Ended up in hospital. And since then I realised I've been two days sober. You know, that was God helping a man who didn't want to drink. But as we all know, the other way also happens. The guy wants to drink. Well, you know, that's very easy. That easy for a downward spiral. So there's a downward spiral and there is an upward spiral. God can push you down in the temptation and for the evil spirit from the Lord and for the Holy Spirit. He can lift you far higher than where you could ever go in your own spirit. And that is the path that you want to be on. That's why you go to church to meet people on that upward spiral and other people down. Other people down. 
Right, we're now going to uh, break bread. The bread wrap is... Don't pass the The bread represents the body of the Lord Jesus and the cup represents his, his blood. So by doing this, we are showing that I want a part in him. I want to be part of him. We show it in an even bigger sense when we get baptized into the body of Jesus. We are saying, I want to be part of this. So, let's just bow our heads and thank God for the, uh, the bread and the cup. Heavenly Father, in this bread we see the symbol of the body of your Son. In this cup we see the symbol of his blood. And we pray, Father, that you will strengthen and bless each of us. And you will bring us all to everlasting life with him. So that his death and his life and his resurrection may not be vain in vain for any of us. Please help us, Father, with all our hearts, we pray. In his name. Amen. Amen.